In early August, the Mendenhall River flooded after an outburst of water from Suicide Basin sent rushing floodwaters downstream, eroding riverbanks and causing extensive structural damage to several homes. One such home belonged to Amanda Era, who spoke with Whalesong about her experiences, struggles, and takeaways from the disaster. You're listening to the full interview. My name is Amanda Ara, and I'm a physician assistant, and I'm the provider at the UAS Health Clinic, and I've been here for 10 years. I've been a PA for 20 years. I'm originally from the East Coast. I grew up in New York in a suburb of New York City, and I moved to Alaska in the late 80s, and um, I've been living in Juneau 30 years. I'm from a suburb in New Jersey and came up to Alaska, so... Eastern Seaboard. Uh-huh. Uh, you've been here for 30 years. Uh, if I understand right, you built your home with your husband or your husband built your home? Yeah. So my husband, it, he, he's retired now, but he was a general contractor who built single family homes in Juneau um, for the bulk of his career. So yes, he did build our home. In the past 30 years, I mean, these outbursts started in 2011. They've been doing it every year. This is the worst one yet since 2016. Has it ever gotten to this extent before? Like in these floods in the past, have you ever felt like your livelihoods were in this much danger? Oh, no. So, you know, the first outburst happened the year we were building the house. My husband and I had a lot of property that we believed protected us from the river. When we were building our home and that first outburst happened, we saw, you know, it just came slightly up above this line of trees that was down by the river. It wasn't even our property. It was still the river corridor. We never thought that it would get as high. In fact, it was like a one in 500 year flood, you know, that was um, very unexpected. It wasn't something that we ever thought would affect our house because we actually were really far back from the river. We had quite a bit of property between us and the river. We're not risk takers. It's not something that we would have said oh, yeah, we're just going to build right on the edge and hope that this never happens. And, you know, people all over the U.S. have seen photos and commented, oh, they shouldn't have built so close to the river. We didn't. Yeah. (laughs) This was a really unusual event, and the river changed course as a result of the outburst. And so now we are on the river. I mean, you see that erosion, like a 13-foot crest that just, like, completely shifts it. And, I mean, it's settled again now, but those coastlines, they're eroded for, like, it's fully permanently changed the the path. We lost probably about half of our property and our house, which had this huge buffer, is now right on the edge of the river. And there's no way to get that property back because the river changed course. Yeah. You can't unchange that. Yeah. And those houses, they're not covered by insurance, right? Those riverside homes? Yeah. I've learned a lot about flood insurance and um, home insurance and disaster relief since this happened to me. People who own homes have home insurance. Home insurance doesn't really cover something like this. You know, even if you had had flood insurance, which of course I didn't because I wasn't in the river corridor, so I didn't think I needed it. But even if I'd had flood insurance, it wouldn't have covered my house because my house actually didn't get any water inside it. The earth underneath it was taken away. And so so now the foundation's destabilized. Home insurance policies don't cover soil erosion, landslides, that kind of thing, usually. And ours didn't cover that. Even if we'd had flood insurance, it wouldn't have covered it. So we're kind of on our own. You launched this GoFundMe campaign, which has got about $1,000 over the goal now. I'm hoping that's that's helped find some sense of stability, but where you're standing right now, how have things sort of settled and what are some things that still need to be done, some challenges you face? Yes, friends, uh, and I want to qualify that friends of mine launched the GoFundMe. Oh. Um, after this happened, I really wasn't in any emotional or mental state to do anything. I was pretty much a zombie for weeks afterwards. Don't blame you. Um, And 
So friends of mine started it for me and they understood the situation with the insurance. And mm -hmm. I'm in a particularly bad situation. Um, not that other people, you know, <laughs> had the, uh, the losses of their homes, like my neighbor who actually, his home was demolished because half of it fell into the river, whereas I still yeah. have a home, even though I can't live in it. And it's not to minimize other people's experiences, but in my unique situation, in May, my husband went into a nursing home because he has advanced Parkinson's disease. And so I, even before my house was damaged, was in this position of financially struggling to pay the bills for him because it's very expensive when you're in a nursing home. And so this made things even worse because I had a little tiny rental unit that I was just getting ready to rent, but I had to move in there because <laughs> I couldn't live in my home anymore. And so now that rental income, which I was hoping to use to help pay for my husband's nursing home costs, I, I'm living there, so I, I can't get that rental income. So it's just really been a huge relief that GoFundMe has enabled me to pay my husband's nursing home costs for a while. It's just given me some relief from that burden. For sure. Yeah. And as far as my house goes, the foundation can be repaired I have people working on that, but of course it will be extremely expensive. But that's your end goal is to ultimately repair the home or are you? Well, yes, just because even though, you know, the soil underneath it, half of it was gone and yeah. the house was just kind of perched on half of, <laughs> you know, it's like half the foundation has dirt under it. The other half doesn't. Yeah. Loose, unstable. Yeah. So, um, so, but the house itself was okay. Mm -hmm. And so when you're in that situation, it's very difficult. I got a lot of feedback from different advisors, you know, engineers, contractors, friends, neighbors about what to do. And unlike my neighbor who half his house fell in the river and so it was really obvious he needed to demolish what was left. In my case, I still had a usable house. And so what do you do? Do you just let it fall into the river next summer or do you repair it? And then you know, where I go from there, I don't know, but it seemed like everybody's advice was you should repair it. And I don't know if I'll be able to live there again just because of what happened to me there. It was so stressful. Yeah. But at the very least, I could rent it mm -hmm. if I can fix it and make it habitable again and get um, the city to sign off on. Sure. You know, I could probably rent it. Well, you say you don't know if you'll want to live there again because it's so stressful. You're referring to just like just the actual experience of being in the house during the flood is just would bring that. Oof. Yeah. Um, um, I can't really describe what it was like that day. Um, uh, let me just say that for about 48 hours after the event, I was shaking and I couldn't stop shaking. Um, it's like, you know, being in a hurricane and it's like being Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz and seeing your house go flying up in the air. Right. I mean, I watched half my neighbor's house fall in the river um, up until really kind of late that day. I didn't know how high the waters were going to come because nobody knew. And so they kept saying, it's going to crest, it's going to crest, and then it wouldn't. And then they pushed that back and say, oh, now it's cresting, you know, three hours from now. And so it wasn't really until late that day that I even realized that it was going to come to my house because I kept thinking oh, it's going to crest and go back down and I have all this land and I didn't really realize what was going to happen. And so it wasn't until later in the day that I realized, no, it's actually going to keep coming and it's starting to eat away your property and you're, you're going to be in this situation. So I had very little time to evacuate because I didn't really realize what was going on until pretty late in the day. 
And so then, you know, I had this short window of time when I had to grab what I, you know, it's one of those situations like, what do I, what's really important to me? I yeah. grab and I had people helping me. And then somebody came into my house and said, you've got to get out. The river's under your house now. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. And so, yeah, I, it was very traumatic. And then I left my house thinking it's going to be gone in the morning. You know, I'm going to come back and it'll just be in the river. But the next morning, my house was still there. And so um, people just showed up. I didn't even call people. I just had friends and then they called people. And this whole team of people came the next day and moved all my stuff out of the house. So I actually didn't lose any of my personal possessions. I'm very lucky. That's, yeah, that's that's extremely fortunate. Yes. I was going to ask if there was a, a moment or a like tipping point where you realized, oh, this is like, this can't, I can't just ignore this. This is going to force me out of my home. It sounds like that would be someone telling you it's under your house. I can't imagine hearing that. No, it's not something that you ever expect, you know. And I just remember the day of the flood thinking, you know, this had happened for 10 years or more. And so in the beginning, they were saying it was just going to be an average flood like what we'd had before. And so I actually went off and had a bike ride and I came back and I saw the river was much higher. And I thought, mm, that's weird. Mm -hmm. And I looked at the forecast again and it was like, no, now it's actually going to crest later in the day. Yeah. But that kept getting pushed. And it was like later in the day, finally, it was like, oh, it's going to crest. I think it was like 11 after 11 o'clock at night. And so it wasn't until the evening when I said to myself, it's going to come up to your house and you're going to be in a situation where you're going to have to leave. And so that was the tipping point. It was actually when the, the neighbor's daughter-in-law came over and said, Amanda, why aren't you evacuating? And I was like, oh. And then I looked at the forecast and they had pushed it back even further. It was going to be now cresting, not until late at night. And I realized, yeah, I got to get out. And at that point, I just shut down emotionally, like I wasn't really feeling anything anymore. I was just numb, and then I just did what people told me to do. Yeah, kind of <laughs> go into autopilot. Yeah, and yeah. I had a lot of support. I had a lot of people there that helped me, and they were saying, point at what you want, Amanda, and I just pointed. And they took stuff out, and then finally people came in and said, you can't be in here anymore. And I left, and I had a friend who, you know, I spent the night at their house. So when my house is repaired, I'll be in this dilemma of what to do because I'm missing all of that property now. And my and my house is now just right on the river. Like yeah. when you're in the house, you're just right there. You know, it's nothing between you and the river. And I don't feel like I could really emotionally do it. I feel like I would just be so um, stressed out, like, I, you know, to live in the house in that new situation. Yeah, I feel like it would be so traumatic for me. So, Even if the river is like docile, yeah, you know, and it's like it's settled. It's still like you think of it as a threat, yeah, like yeah, living yeah. around that all the time, the rushing water. Yeah. And, you know, of course, you know that next summer it's going to flood again and yeah. you don't know how high. Yeah. I've had all kinds of ideas of what to do. You know, I thought, well, I could just move back in, but then next summer move out again for the July and August period when the floods happen, you know, hope. yeah, and hope for the best. I've thought about renting it, but then I think, well, if I do that, then, you know, I'm putting other people at risk. Yeah. I guess I can say, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm well, in a bad situation. Yeah. And you have the GoFundMe funds. Are those going towards current housing or eventual repair costs? And Well, right now I'm earmarking those funds for my husband's care. Okay. Um, it's extremely expensive. Uh, 
Luckily, we did have a long-term care policy that's helping pay for his costs. And he is in a nursing home here in Juneau. It's called Riverview, and it just opened in May. And he's in an apartment, but he has a lot of help, you know, a lot of people helping him. And it's extremely expensive. And so I've just earmarked that GoFundMe for that because yeah. that way, at least I financially know, okay, he's covered for the next, yeah. you know, period of that's time. That's secured. Right. That's secured for now. You know, it's not going to last forever, but at least for the time being while I'm figuring everything else out, I don't have to worry about him. Terrible situation. Yes. It sounds extremely stressful. Yes. Is there is there anything that the the, the, the UAS campus community can be doing right now to, to help take the stress off of this? Like at your GoFundMe is out there. Yep. If you're past the goal, you're still accepting donations. Yes. Oh, of course. And, you know, um, the thing that's so hard for me is I know there's so many other people you know, when you when you look at the big picture, right? I mean, I don't know. Um, it's really hard to look at the news these days, right? I mean, there was just that huge flood in Libya where thousands of people died. Right. You know, we, in Morocco, right? Just like everywhere. Yeah, and you know, I had flooding in Greece, and mm-hmm. you know, we all know, or I shouldn't say we all know. Some of us know what's causing all this. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, and so when you look at me, you say, "Oh, you're really well off, Amanda. You have a roof over your head." You've got this GoFundMe that's helping to pay for your husband's care for the time being until you can figure stuff out. Like, I'm actually in a pretty good place compared to a lot of people. Um, and I and I recognize that, you know. But and to, and to answer your question, what can the community do? Well, I just feel so fortunate to have my job here. I love my work here. And it's very, um, you know, when I come to work, I feel very calm because what I, what I do here, um, I help people. You know, that's my job as a healthcare provider. It's very rewarding, and so I feel like, oh, I'm doing this meaningful work, and it actually gives me something to do other than worry about my house and my husband. Right. So in that way, the university is giving me this opportunity in terms of employment. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people, you know, different people within the university community who have individually contacted me. I know that I have support should I need it. You know, people have offered to help me move or ask me if I need them to drop off meals, what have you. So. I have a lot. I have a lot of help, and um, I can't really think of anything, you know, right now that anybody could do for me um, other than, uh, you know, just continue to be the wonderful, supportive community that UAS is. Well, I mean, a small campus like this, and you're the one health clinic that we got, and I mean, you've helped me with uh, you know health things in the past, and mm-hmm. countless others here on campus, and so you have this whole community in your corner, and so. We're looking out for ways to support you, and if you ever you ever need things platformed or shared out, then just just let us know. Yes, I, I certainly will. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, and then you know, I I just wanted to add that as far as the situation with the river and kind of wh- where things are at with planning for the future or whatever, I think it's it's interesting that the banks of the river, which you know, if if I had known, and of course hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> That that earth, that the property that I had was so uh, easily washed away by the river because I did not realize that could happen, um, then I would have protected it, you know. And so right now, many people along the river are putting in rocks to protect the boundary of their property so that when the floods happen in the future, which they will, um, hopefully those rocks will keep the river from just washing away even yeah. more pro- property. And so I am going to be doing that on the banks, on my little section. Mm-hmm. And from what I've seen when I've looked up and down the river, it seems like everybody's doing that to try to, in a sense, you're channelizing the river. 
But I mean, ultimately, if the water got high enough, which they're saying we don't really know, right? Like this wasn't supposed to happen. So um, it could be in the future, even bigger water. Yeah. And so from what I can understand, the suicide basin, what's happening is as the ice is melting out of the basin, there's more room for it to fill with water. Yeah. And so, of course, that means more volume of water. And so... And that will just, like, break off, yep. you know, refill. And... And, yep, and it keeps refilling. And, I mean, every year will be different, but I think we can expect higher water. And so yeah. when you think about, well, what's going to happen down the line, which I, I don't think anybody can say for sure, but we can say for sure that we could have even bigger flooding events. Oh, yeah. There's a scary quote from our from our professor here, Aaron Hood, yeah. who went up there and looked at the basin after the flood. Mm-hmm. He said, never seen it collapse that deep and that something had fundamentally changed. Mm-hmm. And that's really daunting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, based on everything you just said, I mean, there's there's not so much that humans can do like when it comes to, to future-proofing like nature, especially as climate right. is changing so fast. But I mean, in your experience, is there anything you would say to people on the on they were maybe in that path now for future flooding mm-hmm. uh, other than just hope for the best yeah i mean right i mean i just really feel like i mean obviously you've got to stabilize the bank mm-hmm. with rocks so that it doesn't wash away but as far as how high the water will go i mean not to be a doomsday foreteller or anything but um if it had gotten much higher, it would have started spreading out over the entire valley. Right. I can tell you that from you know my perspective. So I don't know. That's like where the bulk of the population in Juneau lives. So um, I don't know. And I hope that there's people who know much more than I do about geology and hydrology and who are looking at this issue and saying, is there anything that we can do to yeah. uh, help avert a bigger disaster? And that question, I don't know, because, I mean, it's just only this only just happened in August. So people are still trying to make sense of it. So for sure. And I mean, beyond just the individual level, I feel like the city of Juneau and just the the way financially things work, an insurance coverage system for just like houses that are not flooded, but damaged by the ground. That seems like absolutely needed going yeah. forward, especially because, yeah, this isn't going to be the last. And mm-hmm. I don't think with any existing climate model, weather model, you can say that it will be the worst. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I you know, my mind goes to all kinds of things. Like, it seems like the best solution would be to, if there was a way to make it such that suicide basin did fill, right? Like, mm-hmm. is there a way to make an opening where it just continually drains? Because the problem is it fills and then releases. Yeah. Can we make it so that wherever that exit point is for the water consistent consistently drains instead of damming up with ice. I don't know if that's possible, but it's something I'm sure people are looking at. The other idea that I heard from somebody, and I can't remember who because we had this neighborhood meeting and there were a lot of different people there, scientists, state employees, city employees, and someone was saying something about, you know, doing some type of um, big, it would obviously be a very expensive effort, but uh, some type of, you know, flood diversion type of yeah. situation that would divert water like a spillway or something. Because, I mean, when you think about it, if it does continue to get bigger, you're talking about flooding the entire Mendenhall Valley because it's just a flat valley floor. Yep. And it'll just spread out. Yeah. And, and um, you know, water goes everywhere where it's flat. So, uh, you know, in that scenario, you're not just talking about a few people along the river who live, 
live along the river. You're talking about the entire valley. So, and not just homes either. You're talking businesses. Right. You're talking Schools. roads. Yeah. Oh, it would be just catastrophic, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. But you know, um, at this point, I- I'm just trying to every day wake up and say, okay, what do I have to do today? And not, I'm not trying to think about the future because it's just so scary. And I am making plans as if I don't have that house because I know it could be washed away next year, you know? And so I just say to myself, well, I've got to have a plan B of where I'm going to live and how, how I'm going to proceed ahead. And that includes taking care of my husband because I can't count on that house, you know? So like, even if I get it fixed and I rent it, at some point I, I could lose the house entirely, yeah. lose that rental income. So um, I'm just sort of proceeding ahead as if that's not an option. Yeah, you take it a day at a time. Right. And with something as huge as this, something as, you know, the human brain is not really able to to grasp the yeah. consequences of climate change and like solve it in a day in your head. You just have to take it in bite sized and just do the best uh-huh. you can. Yeah. And, and I actually, uh, I was thinking about this on the way over. I've thought about this before. And, you know, it is it when you start thinking about it. Um, I mean, I'm sure I'm like many people where your brain just shuts down because yeah. you think I can't do anything. But mm-hmm. I have done things in my life. Um, you know, years ago, I started thinking, well, what can I do? You know, for example, um, as I said, my husband was a general contractor. And so for several years now, all of the houses that he built, he put in heat pumps or um, other types of heating that didn't involve fossil fuels. He stopped using oil heat years ago in, wow. in the homes he built. Um, I've been driving an electric car now for, oh, I don't know, since 2015, I think. It's just little things. I recycle, of course. I compost. I'm trying to, in my own personal life, take anything that I can to reduce yeah. the carbon that I produce as an American. Mm-hmm. And I really wish that more people would look at what they can do. And I know financially, not everybody can um, afford to pay for the composting service. Sure. But there's things that each of us can do mm-hmm. to modify our own behaviors. And if you multiply that by 300 million people, which is what I think we have in the U.S., yeah. it would make a big difference. Huge difference. Yeah. And, and even if on an individual level, you're not thinking to yourself, I'm saving the world, right. it alleviates the guilt. Exactly. And I was moving here from Anchorage and living in a place that's hydropowered. And where I don't have to step into any building and think every single thing that's using electricity is using fossil fuels. It Those things do affect your mental condition yeah. like yeah. infinitely. Like speaking as a young person, it is almost impossible to think about these consequences in the future without just spiraling. <laughs> like you downward have to spiral. say downward spiral. Like I have, I'm going to be in Juneau, Alaska for this year and then I'm going to figure out what's next. <laughs> like right. Just, yeah. And, you know, I think that's just kind of how our minds are supposed to work. I don't think we're supposed to be planning decades in advance for ourselves. You just you mm-hmm. take take what's thrown at you. You put yep. the hand you're dealt. Yeah, uh, that's all you can do. And um, I just hope that, you know, I just hope that the word gets out. Yeah, there's things you can do mm-hmm. as an individual. You can make these little incremental changes. And if everybody did that or a majority of people mm-hmm. did that, then we could actually start seeing some change, you know, yeah. um, because what else are you going to do? I mean, you could just give up and say, there's no hope. But I'm just going to continue to hope. <laughs> yeah. Nihilism is easy. Yes. Despair is easy. Yes. Yeah, it's easy to fall <laughs> it's into. It's true. It's true. It is the easy route. <laughs> For sure. Honestly, I think it's inspiring that, that you have faced this heavy of a loss mm-hmm. um, because of climate change. Yeah. And, and you're still in that mindset and you're still taking it 
uh, taking it strong. And so, yeah. you know, I commend that. And, and I will say, um, I have a son. He is your age. He's a co- in college student. He's actually going to UAF in Fairbanks. And really, it's because of him, right? Like, I think if I didn't have a young person in my life who I love so much, that I probably would be a lot more fatalistic and like, oh, there's no hope. Yeah. Especially given what just happened to me. Mm-hmm. But I, I can't. Because of him, I feel like yeah. I have to maintain hope for right. his sake. I want him to have a future. Yeah. And not just him, but all young people. So oh, my cousin's kids. I look I look at my cousin's kids, I look at my little my little siblings mm-hmm. and I'm just like, No. No, there it's we're not I'm not accepting that. Right. <laughs> that, that it's that. there's no hope. Yeah. There's no hope. Because yeah. well, A, that's just a horrible thing to come to terms with for anybody. Right. And it's not true. Right. It's not true. It's, it's you have to reckon with the fact that there is hope, but it requires change. It re- it necessitates massive upheavals in our way of life. And Yep, it does. Well, frankly, Gen Z, we've done that before. So Yeah, it's... yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, you guys are you're going to be taken over here soon and hopefully the sooner the better <laughs> because we've got some really outdated people in charge who are thinking in ways that um, are setting us back, holding us back from s- yeah. the solutions that we need to to move forward and make a difference, mm-hmm. you know, in this climate crisis. Yeah. We have to have people who think a different way because yeah. what we're doing right now is not working. And things like that actually give me hope because that's inevitable. Gen Z is just as we right. will just, time will do its job. Time will do its job. We'll take in. <laughs> and also on, on the other end of that, um, coal and fossil fuels they're they just they don't last forever like it's lit, it's on the paper non-renewable yeah. and we're running out and so even if we burn the rest of our fossil fuels mm-hmm. we renewable energy and 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 green policy yeah. is not some radical change that we're trying to push for against the the path that we're on right now no matter what we do we're going to end up with renewables and it's just a matter of when and, and when we say okay we have to we have to actually fast track that right and, and I, I mean i think one of the things that's kind of helping it happen um, is that renewables are actually financially more efficient. You know, I mean, like if if, if you um, look at, and I read about this, so I, you know, from what I read, I, what I'm reading is saying that renewables are um, competitive mm-hmm. with fossil fuels in terms of yeah. uh, electrification and um, vehicles and what have you. So that it's not only is it affordable, it's actually cheaper in the long run to use renewables. So Yeah, I mean, the price of solar has plummeted. Mm-hmm. Like, solar's gotten so cheap and yeah. way faster than anybody was expecting. Right. It's just a matter of storage. Yeah, and so when you have, you know, businesses looking at, oh, okay, we're going to expand and get a new building or we're changing, you know, we have to update this, we have to maintain this, they're going to look at the most efficient, cost-effective way. And if it's renewables, then they're going to choose that. Mm-hmm. So... That's one thing that's on our side as far as making things happen. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, until then, the moral of the interview, take it a day at a time. Yeah. Take, take what's in your immediacy. Do what you can do. Do what you can do in, in your life to yeah. make change and don't despair and just hope that, you know, hope for the best. Yeah. And we're all hoping for the best for you. Amanda. Yeah. Oh, thank we're you. Sorry. Yeah. I'm happy to, you know, you wanted to interview me. I really wanted this interview to be positive i i didn't yeah. want it to be all about my sad story i wanted people to take away something right. hopeful so and i think they will good so, thank you so much for coming sure i appreciate your time yeah thanks for inviting me